It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. I think I'll start this week's podcast by saying, no matter what deal is struck with the EU, this podcast will continue to be excellent. Uh, I am joined, as always, uh, by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hello. Uh, Right, gents. Uh, We've got four or five key topics to get into today. But why don't we go with the one which I feel like we've done it over and over again, which is Customs Union and... The comments from Liam Fox, the business secretary, about the custom, about the customs union. Yeah. Who wants to do you want to start this or do I want to start this? It's, it's pretty easy to wrap up what he said. Um, he's once again reiterated that he thinks that we should not only be not in the customs union, but that we shouldn't be in any form of customs union whatsoever with the EU post Brexit because it limits our ability to have our own independent trade policy. Is what mm. he said. Now, I don't need to know too much about, the, about this other than to say, from the Chamber's point, point of view, I assume you're dead against this. Dead against what? Which bit? Le- leaving the customs union. We've said it's... Actually, our position, uh-huh. our position has... We've not talked a lot about the customs union in, in terms, but the, mem- the membership think it's an important aspect. And the basic reason why... We talked about this in detail last week, actually, so I won't do all that now, but I encourage listeners to go back and listen to the previous one. Um, it's the fact that we don't manufacture complete capital goods in this UK. We're part of integrated supply chains. Uh, so even if we came outside the customs union, even if we got a really good free trade deal with the EU, we would still be, and traders would still be, uh, on the hook for rules of origin requirements. Uh, and that's a huge, huge bureaucratic barrier. The thing I don't get about this Liam Fox thing is how hard is it to have one single message on Brexit? I mean, why is he saying something which is new? And why is it coming from Liam Fox rather than Theresa May, who's having more and more control over Brexit, and ultimately David Davis, who should be in control of Brexit? I, I, I don't know. You tell so, me. That... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the question is, is who, is who is in control of Brexit? And we don't know. And this kind of goes back to, I guess this is kind of a running theme probably through every single podcast we've ever done, is the, you know, one of the things we've talked about, there is no government position. 
Yeah. We know that there is no government position um, because Theresa May has decided what she wants. She drew her three red lines um, randomly in the sand at the Lancaster House speech. Um, we know that Theresa May wants one thing, David Davis wants another, Liam Fox wants another, Boris Johnson wants another, Jacob Rees-Mogg says we just you know, torch the place and run. Um, the Chancellor says it should be close integration. There isn't a government position, and this is essentially really why, you know, I think that's like my private view, certainly an increasingly public view, is in the negotiations, we will basically end up with what the EU wants, because mm. the EU's position is blisteringly clear and hasn't shifted. So actually, while we're still trying to nail jelly to a wall, the EU knows what it wants to do. It's just worth putting out as well, this, this customs union question is so far from being answered. There was, there's an amendment just been shelved by... Anna Salbury and a, a whole bunch of other MPs, um, which stipulates that we need to maintain a customs union in, in the form that we currently have today, post-Brexit. So there are, you know, it, it, there's so much division over it, and I, I, I have no confidence that any of them have a great grasp of what they're actually talking about, because... No, 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 I'm, I'm sure you'd be hard-pushed to find five MPs who could tell you what the customs union actually does. We should do a, um, a randomised sample. Yeah, it, it would be cool, but no, it's, it, it's, it's a... Yeah. I'm constantly amazed that Theresa May is in a a weak position. You would say a classically weak position. Yeah, absolutely. But I actually think she's in a fairly strong position because the threat of her government coming down almost will certainly lead to a Labour government or some such thing. Yeah. Like, oh, her strength should be her weakness. I, I could see it being weaker if she had a large majority, but a majority of that majority were hard Brexiteers. That would be much, much worse. Which is why I'm so confused that Liam Fox can't just simply say, um, refer, to, refer to the memo, or refer to David Davis. Yeah. Or We don't know. That would be perfectly acceptable exactly. as well. Exactly. But I'd say, actually, I, I wouldn't even say no, because I wouldn't say I don't know is unacceptable at this stage, 18 months after triggering Article 50, um, or 18 months after a referendum and 12, whenever, whenever all this stuff happened. Um, because... We're at the point now, we've seen the, the European Union has now published its um, its negotiating guidelines for transition. Um, those are now ready. Um, and of course, you know, the, I think we've joked about this before. The UK government has been saying all the way through phase one, come on, we're going to get to phase two, we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it. We're at the point now within days where the EU will say, okay, so what do you want? And we don't know. We don't know what we want. All we know is we want a relationship which is deep and special. <laughs> deep and special, yeah. Which is not something you can draw up a you know, bilateral international treaty on. No, it's, it's crazy. And I, I, don't, I don't get Liam Fox's obsession with, with you know, the whole having our independent trade policy thing. Because well, in fact, he's international trade minister. Is probably <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's his job, yeah. Uh, but I mean, we spoke about last week about the, the impact that trade agreements actually have is, is very, very small. Yes. Um, yeah. Especially the type of countries which we will want to be negotiating our own trade deals with because the EU doesn't already have them. You know, it's... Uh, it, it's yeah, the, the, there's marginal, marginal benefit well, to the UK overall in, in those issues. Just slightly linked to this, I guess, um, and if you want to comment on it quickly, please do. Uh, Theresa May uh, dashed over to China this this week. Absolutely, yeah. More, more deep and special relationships. Um, because there's quite, a bit, there's quite a few articles this week in the press, big one in the FT this morning, or yesterday, uh, which is talking about actually the relationship on China's investment into the UK does appear to be cooling. Uh, so a number of projects up here in the northwest, particularly, uh, where, you know, proposed to Chinese investment appears to have never actually come through. Um, so that, you know, now what work that was done really with, with Osborne and Cameron and... Uh, 
uh, and President Xi in the early days uh, of the Paris really does appear to have softened off. Now, that is stuff like Airport City. I believe that's tra- Chinese, is it not? It is. That's Chinese uh, Beijing Investment or Engineering Group. That's still ploughing ahead. No problem there. But there is, a, I think, a £150 million project at World Waters, which is due to be Chinese funded, which appears to have gone cold. Now, when is it Chinese funded? What does this actually mean? Uh, essentially Chinese investors. So it is Chinese capital. So, uh, for instance, Mostly private. They threw up this building here. They, uh, you know, they they can sell it. They get capital gain. Exactly. They, they, get the they, they receive yield in, in any other way. But that's partially of my Chinese government as well, which is currently trying to. It, it's got it's getting a little bit jumpy about the amount of capital that's flowing out of the country mm. uh, as, you know, as China's expanded its uh, its reach globally. The Chinese government is now encouraging Chinese firms to think about investing. Uh, in the domestic market. So, for a city like Manchester, what are the downsides to having inflows of Chinese money, particularly if it's owned by people like the government, or is it, pri- or is it pri- private investment? Uh, it's mostly private investment, though I think, you know, I'm no Chinese economist, but I think lots will tell you it's a, it's a blurrier line in China, probably yeah. more private than it, is, uh, than it is here in the UK. It's it's overseas capital, like anything else. You know, it's good investment. It allows you know things to happen here without needing UK capital and UK banking support to do that. The downside, of course, that means the returns you know, the returns on that capital flow overseas. So it's got an impact on the UK bank account. Right. Well, that was uh, that, that was quite quite an enjoyable little uh, 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 little tangent. Uh, well, from um, cap- well from capital leaking out of China to um, information leaking out of the government, uh, there was actually a, um, a, a leak re- regarding. Is it an impact assessment? Have I got that correct? Yeah, it was a, a Brexit forecast, I guess you could say. Um, it was leaked by a guy at Buzzfeed, I think. Um, mm, yeah, they got hold of it first. Originally. Uh, I actually don't know too much about the source of this. This, this was a paper that was written by the civil service, I presume. It appears to have cross-departmental approval. Yeah, yeah so they've so all seen it. Now, is this one of those impact assessments that don't exist? Uh, no, 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 this, this definitely exists. As in, uh, but, but it's not one of those ones that David Davis has commissioned. Yeah, this appears to have come from um, Government Economic Service, the GES. So it, it, is, it is the civil services. Mm. Um, cross-departmental, cross-ministerial yeah. uh, branch. I mean, the, the reason why... This, this leak hasn't been particularly useful, I don't think. Like, like many things in the, in the Brexit process, it's, it hasn't been particularly productive in pushing the conversation forward. Because it looked, again, at the, the three uh, broad routes which everyone can guess, so WTO, uh, something like Norway, something like Canada. Um, the results of it were that all of them would negatively impact the economy um, in relation to not Brexiting at all, uh, with the WTO being the worst impact and Norway being the least worst impact. The numbers were not far off what the, what, what the figures were from the, the uh, impact assessments which came up before the referendum. Yeah. Um, so it, it really hasn't told us anything new particularly. I mean, perhaps the most interesting point about it is that they tried to hide it um, and... That the government has said that the reason that they didn't want this to become public is because it looks at the same three scenarios that have been looked at many times before and that they want something completely bespoke um, so it doesn't really represent what they're going for. So where would bespoke fall into, these, into this range of scenarios? Well, this perhaps is a problem more widely with trying to you know, assess the impacts of the three scenarios is that we're not going to get any of them exactly. Uh, uh, you know, even if we go down the WTO route, there'll be 
multiple agreements on top of that which means that it's not it really isn't no deal like the true no deal as we've said before yeah. um, if we go down the route like Canada we won't end up with a deal which is exactly the same as CETA it will be ta- tailored to us in some way uh, again Norway um, will be based on something like the EEA which has specific um, you know, specific agreements for, for each country that's party to it so Whatever we get, it will be bespoke. Uh, it's, it's a rubbish point that's being made by the government because we know that they're looking broadly at going down the Canada or the Norway route. Um, we've said before that it's not a spectrum, that they're kind of a distinct set of tools, each one of them is, and we'll open that box and use those tools to, to tailor it to us. So for them to say that the, the report's not relevant because they're going for a bespoke deal is, is a bit nuts because you could, you could never do an impact assessment on their bespoke deal because none of us have a clue what it is yet. Um, you know, if, if we're going to, tr- including our government, yeah, if we're going to try and box it into options, those would be the best three. <laughs> All right, so give me something to be optimistic about. Then, is there any scenario that either of you can see where the UK would be better off outside of the EU? Has, has this assessment really taken into account all the options, or is it just taken into account the sort of the mainstream options? Um, oh, it, it's taken into account the mainstream options, and I don't know what time frame it's looking at, but is, is there an option which would leave us better off in the short term? No. I, I, I don't even think Brexiteers would, would say that there is. No, no, indeed, absolutely. Um, lo- long term, I mean, you know, you, you're just guessing then. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, I think the challenge is, you know, number one, moving, moving away, you know, in, increasing frictions between the UK and its single biggest trade partner is going to have a negative effect. That, you know, on its own... That's very, very clear. It's very hard to measure. It depends on how you want to do it. And actually, the, 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 the estimates in this report were between minus 2 and minus 8% of GDP in 15 years' time. That's where we're broadly where we're looking. So 2% lower than it would be if we'd stayed in for Norway, 8% lower than it would be uh, in 15 years than if we'd go for WTA. What it did do, actually, which I think is interesting, and whilst I think we've seen them before, the wider public might not, is it also reiterates the potential benefits to trade deals that we would then be able to strike outside of that. And Alex talked a little bit about this last week. And of course, actually, it's been long known that a trade deal between the UK and the US, it was last, I think, Treasury did a huge report on it back in about 2013. It's about half, a, it's just under half a percent of GDP over 15 years, mm. which is basically zero to, to any any you know, any significant amount. And if you do the same with India and China, you come up with basically the same kind of numbers. Um, and that's because we model trade on a gravity model, which is basically actually very, very long distance trade in huge volumes. Doesn't happen because it's a long way away. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's just that straightforward. You know, there's a reason corporates work in kind of regional clusters around the world, you know, Americas, Europe and Europe and North Africa, East Asia, Australasia, because being close matters. So actually, you know, even if you go for, you know, the least damaging scenario which allows you to um, do your own trade deals, which will put you at Canada, which is about minus five. No amount of additional trade deals with the countries would ever make up that gap. That's the yeah. That's the clear. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's a little bit like most of our trade goes to go, goes to Ireland or some such thing. I mean, it's not the biggest country; it just happens to be the closest. It just happens to be closest. Exactly. And that's the important point. Hmm, tricky one. Um, now, I, I always wonder with the EU. Uh, I mean, it seems to when you talk about trade deals, you know, effectively, you know, we'll accept this under these rules, and it, the more trade deals you accept, the more and more complex all the various trade rules become. Mm-hmm. Now, for my basic A level eco- um, economics classes, I, I remember them talking about the WTO, and actually, the whole point of that is to cut regulation. Do, do you think? 
as an alternative to, to Brexit, and this is kind of outside the box thinking, the EU would just be better off to go, go through a round of regulation cutting over and over again. Because this can't be the best way to do it. It, it depends what you mean by regulation. And I, I think there's an argument to say that what the WTO is, it, it reduces regulation by increasing it almost. Do, do you... It reduces frictions. Yes, yeah, by... that's, that's what I mean. Yeah, but, but... exactly. But it seems like for every new regulation you put in, it's, it's this whole other framework, which is kind of, and then you've got to deal with all the different laws of unintended consequences and you know uh, impacts on markets, which you, you know, which you never expected. I just can't see it being the best way. No, and I, and I think this is sort of, I think it's one of those things where I think we've talked before about David Allen Green, one of our favourite commentators, always from the FT, and he talks about you know one of the biggest mistakes the UK has made in the whole Brexit process is pretending it's simple yeah. uh, when actually this is extremely complex is most people and I would include most economists um, uh, and most global analysts massively underestimate how incredibly complex um, protectionist and downright dirty international traders yeah um, you know, everyone again. We talked about this in one of the early, the very early podcast. I think you know that in, for most people who live in Europe, we never see the dirtiness of international trade because we're we're we are essentially cosseted inside the world's largest single market, so we don't see a lot of it. Um, but you know, there's been the trade disputes with Bombardier recently. US is going for all sorts of trade um, uh, trade disputes or starting trade disputes on the back of trying to block steel from China, etc., etc. There's loads of it's a very very dirty world. Um, and the WTO, born as it was out of out of GATT, GAWT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, WTO came into formation in the 90s. And it's basically on about setting some basic minimum standards by which everyone abides by to try and get rid of some of that dirtiness. Um, it's, there's still a lot of it because there's a lot to play for. You know, there are, you know, even if we take the, let's take the Patrick Minford of the Economist for Free Trade or whatever they're now called report, even his scenario which says, you know, actually Brexit will liberate the UK economy, allow it to do all sorts of stuff. Don't forget, his his estimate for forecast for GDP was for 2.7% last year, which is about as out as some of the other economists in the other direction. Um, but he said that would pretty much eradicate manufacturing and agriculture in the UK. You know, th- th- that is the, the, these are the kind of stakes that are at play when you open your markets up to competition from people who can do it much, much cheaper than you. But, I mean, that's kind of the point. We want it cheaper. We want it aimed at the consumer. I know we've had this conversation before, mm, but yeah, yeah. if as long as the consumer wins, everyone wins. Uh, and, but if that consumer is then unemployed, then mm. they don't have any money to go and buy the goods, even if they are cheaper. So it's all of those trades. You, you said you're revisiting the, you know, the deindustrialization of the 1970s, the agricultural reforms of the 1950s, um, the Luddite reforms of the 19th century. You're revisiting all those arguments afresh each mm. time. So there's a lot to lose. You know, the, the Bombardier-Boeing dispute um, in Northern Ireland, which, which the EU not was won for us. Yeah, uh, well, it's not been resolved. Has uh, it not? It's, it, there was something passed last week in a, which, in a U.S. court. Uh, but whatever the detail, I can't remember. I've not seen the detail on the uh, on the trade, but it looks like it's going in our favour anyway. Um, you know, there is an entire industry at stake that hangs on how that goes. That's not, it, this is not just you know we might narrow our margins here. That could put a hole through. Bombardier or Airbus or Boeing's sheer existence in the market or not. So I, I don't think when people talk about, we'll go back to the customs union, mm. I, I don't think people 
understand that the implications of leaving the customs union in one go would go both ways. So, like, I, I came across another video which made me angry today, and I've, it's really old. Ooh. But I've seen it before. So, it's a video. Of Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, we need to come out of the customs union because it's a protectionist racket which protects producers in rich companies. Yeah, uh, rich countries, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he does expense. have a point, though. But and, and there is, there is truth in that statement. Yeah, because yeah. he uses the example of, of coffee beans. So uh, the duty on green coffee beans is zero, but the duty on roasted coffee beans is 7.5% or something like that. So mm. basically we don't give the African countries which produce the beans the opportunity to roast them because the Italians and the Germans want to roast them. Um, which is where the value is, of course. Yeah, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I've got lots of problems with this statement. First of all, there's a thing called everything but arms, yeah. which gives the 50... I think there's about 50 countries who are basically the, the, the least developed countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, gives them total tariff, everything, free access to the single market on everything but arms. Yeah. So the well, co- that disadvantages us. So, so, mm-hmm. so, so, the co- yeah. <laughs> so the countries which... which he's probably talking about already can send things freely to us um, then the second problem with it is that if we were to just leave hang on everything but arms and roasted coffee beans everything but arms yeah everything so roasted coffee so yeah so coffee beans is included in that. they so, can send it without tariff so, so is there a tariff or is there not a tariff there's not a tariff on everything but arms there is no tariff there so is. it's from those 50 least developed countries Ah, so he's obviously picked yeah. a country where there is a tariff. So yes, yeah, so only uh, more developed. The big biggest importers of green, of green coffee into the EU is uh, Brazil and Vietnam. I think by it's not Ethiopia. I think I think they're third. Oh, okay. I think Brazil and Vietnam make up like something like forty percent of the imports or something like that. But the, the point I was going to make anyway is that Sorry. If, if 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 you leave the customs union, yeah, he's maybe he's got a point. But there would have to there would then all of a sudden be a massive realignment in our own economy. Because all of a sudden, we our import exports to the EU, sorry, would be subjected to all these tariffs too, mm. and then we can't retaliate them against them because of you know we all, we've all spoken about MFN clauses before, meaning that if we retaliate against those tariffs, we have to put those same tariffs against everyone else, and so all of our exporters all of a sudden have to face up to the same tariffs that he's complaining about, and industries would it just exactly it's the old thing. There's two sides on, on every policy decision. There's two sides. It's a trade-off. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's also. <laughs> I mean, there's also the, the small fact that they're going to have to pour, quite literally, maybe millions of tons of concrete to actually build all the things and the infrastructure to do this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That you have to build yeah. Mm, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, yeah, and that sort of comes back to the, you know, are we genuinely preparing for no deal, which has been sort of wrapping oh, around the news this week. Yes. That's a whole other... There's a great little story, which I loved, about, I can't remember the exact name of it, was, was it the Road Haulage and Trucking Bill? Something like that. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. So, um, in an attempt to show that we are really preparing for no deal, um, they actually, the Civil Service actually wrote up a bill um, which would cover the future of... Uh, road haulage and trucking uh, in a WTO option world yeah and um, it's being shelved because it made no deal look so bad really yeah because because what they found was so bad um, and so in an attempt to show that we're being serious about the threat of no deal <laughs> we've actually shelved it because it, it made them realise how bad it is have you been lucky enough to get a, get a copy of this bill or is it oh, shelved shelved I don't have the time to. I don't have the time to get through stuff like that <laughs> well if, if someone does um, ok well um, there was a story um, doing the rounds about a guy called Steve um, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and someone else who you were trying to tell me about Steve, Steve Baker MP right so you have to tell me all, for, all, 
all from the start about what this is. This is only just a, a little, a little political. I quite enjoyed it though. Story. Um, <laughs> this was going back to the the leaked uh, impact report, whatever it's called. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg asked a question in Parliament where he implied somewhat that the Treasury had been uh, messing around with the numbers to make this report. Uh, tell the story that it's really bad if we leave the customs union so that they'd been be- being selective with their numbers essentially so this leaked report was basically do- was basically doctored um, uh, or wasn't as authentic as you might wish that's what wish. Jacob Rees-Mogg was implying and then Steve Baker answered uh, saying that he had heard from a guy called Charles Grant who works for the Centre for European Reform at a conference or a party or something like that he'd heard a similar story and that he'd heard on the grapevine that they'd been messing with the numbers um, to make it show what they want. Um, and then loads of other people who were there came out and said, that's not what he said at all. Don't don't put that on, on Charles Grant. He didn't say that. Um, and Steve Baker said, well, I think he did say that. He did say that. And then number 10 came out and said, we have no reason not to believe Steve Baker's version of events. <laughs> and everyone was saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if a recording of this conversation came out? Well, what do you know? And, a, re- and a recording of the conversation <laughs> recording of the conversation did come out, and Steve and Charles Grant did not say that, and then Steve ba- Baker had to issue, issue an apology. I, I have many, many conversations, uh, most days. Not one of them that I know of is... Um, is actually recorded. I, mean, I don't know how they get, get. I mean, if I even had the slightest doubt that my conversation was recorded, I don't think that I would fabricate any part of it whatsoever. Yeah, well, that's the example too that we've spoken about today of of government having more than one position on a particular thing. And then the third one, which we probably should probably mention, is that there was a a letter which went out to uh, businesses written by Dexu. It had uh, David Davis's name on it, Liam Fox on it, name on it. Um, it was a letter to businesses ensuring them continuity uh, for the transition period, saying our intention is that everything will remain the same, don't worry, uh, immigration will continue as before during the transition period. So this letter was sent out to businesses, and then less than a week later, Theresa May came out and said, actually, I don't want freedom of movement to continue as before during the transition period, said something that was the opposite of what this letter to businesses had said. Um, and then the EU instantly came back and said, no, you can't do that. We've already told you it's got to be maintained as it is throughout the transition period. So it, it's, I mean, that, that was literally within 10 days. I, <laughs> I mean, if, if the Department for Brexit did anything, it should just be to qualify statements. That, that, that's all it should be. If you're going to say something, you need to get it. I, I, it baffles me. It absolutely baffles me. This is really why. This is why, um, I think. So many of us on the kind of the analyst side of this are just, you know, we're, we're reading less because it's getting tired grunt. of it. Yeah, it's just grunt. We just the government is making the most difficult political policy choice that the UK has gone through in decades, as difficult as it can possibly make it. And this is just so insane. You know, this was always going to be difficult, even if you know, with the best one in the world and an astonishing set of political leaders. Uh, and the unanimity of the public and business in supporting it was still going to be horrendously hard. But at every single step, Theresa May and the, you know, the upper echelons of the cabinet are just doing everything they can to make it infinitely harder than it has to be. And that's just depressing. I, I just wonder, from a pure political strategy point of view, whether you should just. It's, I was going to make a, uh, it's going to make a sports analogy then, but it might be wasted here, so I won't. Well, it'd be wasted with me. I mean, <laughs> the listeners and Alex, I'm sure, will understand. But. Uh, well, 
I just wonder if it's worth just blow, blowing, the, blowing, blowing the whole thing up. Letting, letting a very weak Labour government destroy themselves on the rocks of Brexit and then for the Tory party to re, um, regather just, later just, on. Just throw the towel in. Yeah, just, <laughs> look, it's just not for us. It isn't for us. Go, go back to the country. Uh, hope for a loss uh, and then just let Labour pick up the pieces. Because yeah. no, I, I just can't imagine... I mean, I, I would love to see the Labour attempts... At this also, because yeah, you know, it might actually no be. More, a, but with that, the problem is the part. The, you know, it can't be any worse. Position is no more coherent than. than I mean, because uh, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. No, I mean, they might be a bit more disciplined. I mean, you simply just just don't know. So that, that's kind of how despondent I am at the moment. Um, now I've just got a. Um, I've just got a question here, which I've written down, and all it says is, "Why am I outraged?" So, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so um, the, the "Why am I outraged?" Uh, question is um, the the talk about potential sanctions if the UK goes its own way and decides to do something as outrageous as lower its own taxes or cut its own regulation. Yeah. So this is... Uh, do you want to pick up on or do you I, want to... I, I don't know anything about this. Okay, so... So, 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 <laughs> so, so why am I outraged at... Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 outraged of Chalton, sat opposite <laughs> me, uh, uh, is furious because the EU has said it is preparing for and considering whether it might need to, uh, in, its, in the concept of the future relationship between the EU27 and the UK, have the availability for, for sanctions or trade mediation of some form um, to, to challenge any any... Any position which it considers for the UK is over-competitive, I guess. Um, and there's been two kind of responses to this, really. One is one is very similar to Mr. Outrage of Jordan, <laughs> which, which is basically how dare the EU um, get to this point? How does this help? You know, our our you know coming together to try and form a mutually beneficial future relationship. Uh, and the other one is the usual one from some of the Alice side, who said actually this makes perfect sense because of the special, the kind of special case. So. Let's talk a bit, a little bit through that. So the EU's position on this is, I guess, is twofold. One, any deal with the UK, assuming the UK is a third country, which it, you know, it will be in a year and a bit, any deal with the UK will be will have to be very different from anything it's done with anybody else because it's never had a trade deal with a with an economy as large, as strong, and as physically close. Yeah. So you know, the, the, all those things we talk about, like gravity trade models, all the rest of it. Um, you know, with the fifth, you know, depending on you do the exchange rate, the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. Um, you know, only Germany and the EU is larger than that. So, so we're, we're a slightly special case. It's not done anything of this scale before. Um, the second one, of course, is that the from its point, from it, the EU's point of view, the UK wants a deep and special relationship. We don't know what that means, but we can read into that. that it, we know that the UK government's position on the whole is that it wants something better than a plain FTA, a plain free trade agreement. It wants some form of additional preferential access into the single market. It certainly wants it on financial services, though it appears it's not going to get it. Um, so the EU is saying, well, okay, but if you're wanting something more than a basic FTA, then we have to put protections in which are greater than a normal FTA. So if you imagine the analogy now, a, the free trade agreement with Canada needs very little in terms of um, sanction and corrective measures. Though there are some in there for the little bits of services that that throws in um, and dispute resolution. But actually you don't need a great deal because it's a long way away. It's never going to be massively penetrating in the market. It's relatively small scale so we don't need to worry. 
the UK's position is not only is there FTA, but inside a customs union, crucially inside a single market, which means the EU has to absolutely enforce a level playing field between the EU27 and the UK as we stand today. So there's all forms of sanction mm. that are available. Um, the, EU, the EU can fine the UK government. It, we have state aid protection. We have health and safety protection, all of that stuff. So essentially what the EU is saying is saying, well, look, if you want something in between CETA and single market, which is essentially what we are saying, then you need to accept that the sanctions and mediation regime has to be somewhere in between mm. CETA and the single market. So, so these are basically, rather than sanctions, you know, as you might hear them for, against, you know, Iran or yeah, North san- Korea. Sanctions is too big a word because, uh, yeah, sanctions, I think, to most of us means we're going to put full-blown trade embargoes <coughs> in place. What is the question of? He's saying, well, actually, if you want better access, if you want to get some kind of services access for the UK economy, preferential access into the EU, then actually we can't have the UK government subsidising its firms willy-nilly because Mm. that is giving you an advantage. So we will, in that deal, there will have to be some form of state aid. So um, very interestingly, I mean, we we spoke about what would Labour do in this this position. I mean, this would be one of the things that they just could not accept. Well, it it varies on your on kind of your position. I think so. This is you would say because of course Labour's position is it wants to buy everything. Yeah, nationalise it if it moves. Um, of course, the thing is, is the EU does not have any problem with nationalisation. Hmm. Indeed, if you if you you know go and see, the big one is we won't be able to Corbyn won't be able to nationalise the railways because we're in the EU. Hmm. Except, except the point that every other European nation has its as its train services nationalised. They're nationalised, but they have to run along. You know, along the same lines, excuse the pun, uh, of of competition rule, they've got to behave exactly. like exactly. So separate balance sheets, separate P and L. That's the, that's the crucial part. So they are they, as to who owns it. I mean, this is for me is actually a very nice and pragmatic economic point. I'm, you know, I'm not a pre-nationalisation, pro-nationalisation, pro-sector. Theoretically, who sits behind it kind of shouldn't matter. Mm. It's about how it's run and how the incentives are gained. So all the all the EU rules say is. What you can't have is the government running, you know, East Coast Rail in the UK, and that that EU and that that East Coast Rail franchise is being propped up and I guess, by its ability to hoover additional corporation tax revenue out of the gas industry. Yeah, and I guess the problem is railways don't really compete. No, that's it. it, it they come into a, into a classification where economies called public goods, natural monopolies, mm. uh, essentially. So there is. So, but that's that's it. You know. So people said we had to privatise Royal Mail a couple of years ago to comply with the postal directive. Now that you m- need to privatise it. You just need to separate it. Now that so might be actually owns the shares. Royal Mail. Uh, that kind of example might be more problematic for Labour if they wanted to, for instance, get you know uh, the post all owned by. Um, all, uh, sorry, um, all nationalised. Mm, I mean, it, it, it could do it. It would just need to be arm's length. Government could own all the shares. That's not a problem. But it would need to be arm's length. Excellent. Um, now, this is the last one. This last issue of the day. But I absolutely love this. It's not really anything. It kind of is to do with Brexit, but it, it isn't. I want to know about how the vote of no confidence works for the Conservative Party. This is, of course, linked to Theresa May being threatened with a vote of no confidence because I think this is fascinating. This is one of those things that people can learn. Yeah, um, well, well, <laughs> I looked into this because there's now, again, there's talk of May being ousted or having to resign or that kind of thing and I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is favourite, I believe. Um, sorry, the Conservative Party membership. Jacob Rees-Mogg is favourite to become Prime Minister 
amongst the Conservative Party membership. I, I, I beg you not to dwell on this thought for too long, because if you thought you were outraged before... <laughs> no, I'm not that outraged. Um, right, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, OK, go on. So, um, so, so what, what is it, 1922 what? So, so yeah, so I'll, I'll give a bit of background. So there <laughs> is a body called the 1922 Committee, which you will probably at least heard of, even if you don't know what it is. It's essentially like the backbench committee. Mm. Uh, so those MPs, those Conservative MPs who are not on the payroll, essentially, so take away Prime Minister, all the Secretary of State, the ministers, the principal private, se- the principal political secretaries, the bank carriers, take all that one out. That's what we kind of call the payroll vote. Um, because those are the people who are normally always going to vote for the government anyway. The rest form part of the 1922 committee. The chair of the 1922 committee is Graham Brady. Well, was now Sir Graham Brady. Uh, he's MP for Altrincham and Sale. Oh. Um, yes. Alex, back to you. So, uh, it's it's just interesting the way that the system works because it, it, it's it's kind of quite exciting when you learn about it. Yeah. Um, so I, d- I don't know how many how many votes need to be shoved. Is it? It's a it's a fixed percentage of the number of Conservative MPs. I can't remember what that percentage is. <laughs> yes, but essentially how it works is you can shelve a complaint or a vote of no confidence to the 1922. Now I've committee. never heard this phrase shelving a vote. It's essentially writing a letter. So you basically yeah, you just you, write a letter. You write a letter to the chair of 1922 saying I'm not happy. Um, that letter then goes on file. Um, it sits there for as long as it needs to sit there. You can withdraw it at any point if you like. But once you've written it and not withdrawn it, it sits there. And then people start, yeah. MPs send them in. Yeah, but I, I think the way that this used to work was that MPs knew how many of these letters had been given in. And they used to automatically expire, I think, after 12 months. And they well. used to automatically expire, yes. It's, it's the changes which make it more exciting. So, so now, MPs, oh. MPs have no idea how many letters are currently, uh, have currently been shelved. And also, the letters sit there forever until you withdraw them. Wow. So, the interesting point becomes, if you <laughs> want to hand one of these letters in because you perhaps want to rock the boat or you know or you genuinely think that Theresa May should step down or all of these things you have no idea whether your letter is the first one or the one which or the straw which breaks the camel's back That's essentially once that threshold is reached the Conservative Party is obligated and automatic, yeah. to this automatically like, have a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister this honestly sounds like something be. invented by Endemol for, uh, channel, for like sounds, Channel 4 on Friday night show, yeah, it sounds yeah. great uh, now, the, the, what's interesting, of course, is Graham Brady was uh, was on the news earlier this week, essentially desperately shouting at Tory MPs, saying, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which suggests we are incredibly close to the threshold. Imagine that. <laughs> Please don't so, get too excited. I mean, I, I know we're no proponents of game theory here, but why on earth would they set up this system? Uh, I don't know. And of course, it's, actually, it's, it's an interesting... Because this is, this is the bit of politics I think often most, most people, I'm sure, don't know about, is, is kind of the way the, the internal party rules work. Mm. Uh, and of course, they're, they're private bodies. Political parties are private institutions. They can set their rules up however they like. Certainly, once you are elected, then the rules of the House take over. Um, uh, so you've got all sorts of things like, you know, the Labour Party managed to get Corbyn on the bit on the on the ballot last time because frankly you just need a certain number someone of gave, nominations. Someone gave him a, char- um, a charity vote. I mean basically and that was it. <laughs> now, the Tory one works very differently. The Tory the Tory one is always one of um, the parliamentary party will never let would never let go of control mm. in the way that the Labour Party reformed the last few years have done. So the members do get the final vote um, in the Tory party, but the MPs whittle it down to two. 
So, so essentially, the, the political party always has the final say in who is presented um, to the membership. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, the, the more worried Graham Brady is, well, the more worried everyone should be. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Would a voting make on to the Prime Minister A be helpful at this stage? But what remit does he have to give his impression? I mean, you're saying that he's telling people to calm down. Well, if he's just pale, so surely yeah. he's, that's against the rules. Or Well, I mean, if he's just pale and sweaty and can't get his words out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he said, he, he is on the record saying, you know, we are very, very close to limit, and I would urge members to think carefully yeah. about what the implications of an addition... Oh, I don't think... So, I so you, could, you could be an MP just thinking, oh, I'll, I'll just hand my letter and just rock the boat a little bit. Like, like, I don't really want it to go. And then the next day you could wake up and there's an automatic yeah, because it's, leadership. Yeah, contest, because it's yeah. an um, anonymous. Like you, it, there's no point. I mean, it's not as if you're protesting openly. I, I'd see, I'd see the political capital in it. Right, let's say, well, I've I've lodged my com- my complaint now because I'm so disgusted about what you've done. But because there is no, you know, because it's all. It's weird. That's, that's the point. That no, no one knows if they'll be the one to tip it, <laughs> which I think is just exciting. What an, ama- what an amazing system! <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll finish off with this bit of um, Tory trivia. As uh, um, as runs that, I saw a picture of Nick Timothy without his beard today. Oh, has he got a clean shape? Yeah, yeah. So that's um, that's well, very often. That is, uh, if that's a market moving event, I hope you've better that and and won the fortune. There we go. Right. <laughs> well, we're forty minutes in. I uh, believe that was quite a nice little podcast. Uh, tell us where we can find you both on social media. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And usual place at GMCC underscore Christian. And at J Beardmore. If you ever would want to tweet that. All right. So, so until next week, we'll see you then. Goodbye. 